The discourse on disability in architecture is not a new one. It has been a while since architects have been attempting to address various forms of disability in the buildings, neighborhoods and cities they design. However, these attempts are most often limited to increasing access for differently abled bodies. With the support of the Graham Foundation for Advanced Studies in the Fine Arts, our guest today is David Kissen, Professor of Architecture and Urban History at the Parsons School of Design. David argues that a disability critique of architecture is not one that solely seeks to make the built environment more accessible, but instead it is one that understands how embedded the ideas of physical incapacity and impairment are within architecture. I am Vaishnavi Shukla and this is Architecture Off-Center, a podcast where we highlight contemporary discourses that shape the built environment but do not occupy the center stage in our daily lives. We speak to radical designers, thinkers and changemakers who are deeply engaged in redefining the way we live and interact with the world around us. We're of course here to talk about your work and... uh, your recently published book, The Architecture of Disability. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about you and how your work reflects your experience as an architect, as an architecture student in the past, and now, of course, an academic and a scholar. Um, Yeah, so I am a disabled uh, designer, author, disabled person. Since I was 16, I'm a um, from the first generation of pediatric cancer survivors of um, osteogenic sarcoma, bone cancer in the United States. And so um, I went through um, architecture school, graduate school, um, positions as a curator, as a PhD student, and um, as an academic for the past 20 years as a disabled person within the discipline of architecture. So I think a lot of my um, perspectives uh, draw on those experiences, and it's something that I felt more comfortable um, writing about and discussing and lecturing about and teaching about um, in recent years. But it's um, something that's always informed my work and something that I've always reflected on um, um, throughout my journey in, in architecture. This this might be a little personal, so please let me know if you don't want to answer it, but architecture education is infamous for how physically demanding it gets, uh, both in terms of studio work, but also how interlinked it is with being on sites or, you know, just doing all your field research and your internship and stuff. How was it for you to to navigate the journey of studying architecture? Yeah, it was difficult. Um, when I was in undergraduate school, um, I walked on crutches and was in a wheelchair um, for about half of the years I was in um, architecture school as an undergrad. So um, this is before I became an amputee um, in my um, junior year of undergraduate. So it was, mm-hmm. it was very difficult. Um, in fact, you know, I remember working in studio with my um, uh, sitting on a stool um, at a drafting desk, which is um, how the, what the setup was like back then. Mm. And um, one of my legs would be under the desk, just like anybody else. And my other leg, which was in a cast at the time, was sort of stretched out on an adjacent stool. And, you know, it was difficult, but I managed. And and that there are actually also um, two experiences from that time that I want to reflect on. One, 
was a group of people uh, in the university who, um, I can't remember what the office was called, but um, were really extraordinarily supportive of me um, remaining in school and did everything they could to um, to find me um, uh, accessible facilities and mm. classrooms and other things that I could use more easily. Um, this is before the Americans with Disability Act. So mm. these must have either been covered by laws in the state I was living in or what's called Section 504, which was the law that preceded the Americans with Disability Act and guaranteed that um, institutions that received federal funding um, provided facilities that disabled people could use. Okay, so that was one set of experiences, which were fantastic. Another set of experiences were, were more incidental and just things like um, professors in particular saying like, are you really sure you wanna go into this profession? Um, or who would watch me the way I was sitting at the studio desk and it, it obviously made them more um, psychologically uncomfortable than it made me physically <laughs> uncomfortable and would make comments about like, you know, maybe maybe you should be an architectural historian and not an architect because that, that'll be easier to do or be less intense on me. So through those kinds of conversations, I definitely got two different sets of messages. One, um, transformations can be made in education so that expanding the um, access, so to speak, to architectural education, another group who felt that being an architect was ultimately about having certain kinds of physical capacities and I didn't meet that um, standard. So that made a very um, big impression on me. And I, I don't, and I think, I think in ways that I'm still kind of coming to grips with in some ways, right? I mean, you don't forget experiences like that. And those are some of the more polite ones that I'm mentioning. There were of course others. Yeah. So that was difficult. And then, um, you know, of course, when you actually start working at a firm, all of the kinds of things that you have to do, um, as an intern, you know, as, as a fresh graduate or as a summer intern at a architecture office in terms of... We're just basically running around. Yeah. But again, you know, I had different kinds of experiences. I, I um, worked for somebody whose um, child was actually very seriously disabled, a, a very prominent architect here in New York City when I was an undergraduate. And he and his firm were remarkable in terms of making a place for me to work there. It was an amazing experience. This at the time was considered... Um, one of the most um, important architectural firms in New York City was um, Gwathmi Siegel. And um, I worked very close with um, Charlie, Charles Gwathmi, um, who was one of the New York Five and had a lot of experiences with um, the kinds of things that I was going through via his own children, or one of his children, excuse me. So that was an amazing experience. But again, you know, there were other experiences that were um, that were very different. I think all of this um, has informed how I behave um, relative to my students and as a professor. So it's not just that I try to make, um, you know, the, the classroom or the studios where I teach or the things that I do, um, quote unquote, accessible. Um, that's easy. Uh, what I try to do is restructure the entire um, studio experience for students through my own lens and make some a kind of space or a way of teaching and working around architectural problems or architectural sites that... Um, draws on different kinds of um, capacities that people have and very much draws on my own um, incapacities. Okay. So for example, um, with a group of graduate students at the height of COVID who were feeling all kinds of, um, you know, anxieties about um, the pandemic, um, instead of um, pin ups, we had what we called place downs where we would um, sit at the desk and just have a somewhat more physically relaxed atmosphere around discussing each other's work, especially with like these, you know, 
masks on our face and the kind of, you know, this is, this is some of the first in-person teaching as the pandemic began to wind down in 2021 and 22. So, you know, so those kinds of experiences are not just important for me as a disabled professor, but they're important for my students because they understand that, that, you know, there's (laughs) what we expect of architects physically, psychologically, can be far more complex. And and now what I'm noticing and um, what's um, fantastic is that these efforts are enabling students who don't necessarily think they have a place in architectural education to come. So right now I have students with a, you know, with a wide range of impairments or disabilities um, who are taking studios with me. And I think they are having, you know, life-changing experiences. And one's very, very different than the ones that I had when I was a student. So that's that's important. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that because I also come from, you know, the the school of thought or the the history of architecture education, which has a lot to do with making, you know, the arts and crafts movement. And um, in our first year, we had a course called Basic Design. It was like a very rigorous course. And one of the professors made it clear on like day one of freshman year, first year, that there's no room for you to be sick let alone have anything happen to your limbs in case you ever fall sick, just pop a pill, but show up in the studio. It was, it was, it was laid out on grounds. Like there's no room for you to be sick. Like forget about being sick. We, there's no space for that. And of course the way the building is designed, it's wonderful building designed by Pritzker Price winner, B.V. Doshi. It's a school of architecture in Ahmedabad. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But one of the critiques of the building is it's it's not, and we'll get to the question of accessible. It's not, it doesn't make room for people who, somebody who's even like in studio fallen down and like hurt a limb or something, you'd, you'd question how do I get that person who has like a knee fracture or something up to the studio. So it was it was a space, I think overall in, in the studio atmosphere in India is just, there's no room to fall sick. And then of course I end up going to grad school in the US and at the GSB, in university-wide, there are questions about accessibility. There's questions about making room, making space for people who have different kind of ailments or just going through different experiences as people who are not able as a healthy human being is quote-unquote defined. But we'll get to your book now because um, I, I loved how you, you frame it. And of course, the title is called The Architecture of Disability, but I found the subtitle of your book very, very interesting. And it says you're looking at building cities and landscape beyond access. Now, of course, the default manner in which we talk about disability in architecture is directly related to how we can provide or increase access to the spaces and cities we design and build. But that is precisely what you're not doing in the book. You're in fact critically looking at the history of the disabled people's relationship to the buildings, to the cities, and kind of pushing it way beyond the functionalist approach of maybe just like designing ramps, you know? Yeah, when I teach studio, I have a prohibition against ramps in any project. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you're concerned about wheel tracks, it's just make a one-story building. There's, you know, um, you know, there's fifteen thousand um, years of history worth of one-story buildings you can draw on. And, and I, I, I want to also probe you if you can also address. We can talk about the cover of your book, and I heard the lecture you gave at. I think it was. UCL Bartlett, where you're talking about the three staircases and how they've been very skillfully adapted and graphically represented 
as the cover of the book to kind of present three different approaches to how we really look at circulation or, or movement. Yeah, I mean, so the um, the origin of this book is um, complex. I mean, obviously, it, um, part of the book is um, memoir, it comes from my own experiences, but, um, but the vast majority of the book is history and theory. Um, I've taught architectural and history and theory, you know, my entire career, there's a few things I've always wondered about. One, um, you know, do I, however modest they may, this may sound, have my own kind of theory of architecture, um, my own kind of set of um, beliefs about um, the kinds of traditional subjects that are in architectural theory, um, ideas about history, ideas about cities and urbanization, ideas about aesthetics, ideas about um, construction, and today more and more ideas about nature and environment. So that was one question. And the other, I think, emerged from teaching history and theory so much and, and being fairly familiar with some big themes and just how much of a, um, a role, let's call it impairment, not disability, um, impairment and incapacity, but also capacity and physical strength figure in, in people's ideas about um, historical experience, um, ideas about urbanization, ideas about aesthetics, certainly ideas about construction and ideas about env environment and the capacities of nature. My ultimate argument, I think, in the book is that a disability critique of architecture is not one that simply seeks to make the built environment more accessible, but one that comes to terms and uh, understanding with how embedded ideas of physical capacity, incapacity, weakness, and impairment are within the discipline's own um, language. Um, and this, you know, I don't want to claim this as a universal. I mean, I think um, the book very much comes to terms, as, as a lot of work does lately, with a, with a kind of canon of um, figures that I was um, introduced to as a student as being central to the discipline. So this book does the work of sort of, that continues many other different people's work and perspective of sort of wrestling with that and 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 pushing back against some of the ideas in that. But it also draws on um, a far more um, global uh, range of thinkers, particularly things that are extremely important to architectural thought right now, like um, uh, 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 voices um, from, from anti and, and quote unquote decolonial perspectives, as well as relatively recent work um, that's looking at um, ideas of, of race, but also gender. And sort of bringing my own critiques into um, dialogue and alignment with some of the points from those other thinkers. So for me, I, I want to be really clear: like I need to move and exist and work in a, in a quote unquote accessible world. That's very important to me, and that's very important to other disabled people. And there's a lot more work to be done in that area. However, I don't think the um, the point of the um, perspective of access or, or inaccessibility is enough. And um, we need to have uh, a kind of more thorough um, rethinking of um, many, many, many aspects of um, architectural discipline and education and practice. And I think this book begins um, to do that work, at least, you know, from again, from the perspective of disability. I got to read a couple of um, 
excerpts from what was available on Amazon because I can't unfortunately order the the book. It's not available in in the Indian Amazon store right now. But I I did find we have to do something about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I found a couple of familiar names. I saw Villaluduk and I I I saw the old people there, the the usuals. But then what I also found interesting was um, picking up some of these very classic examples and offering a very nuanced reading of those plays. For example, there's a, there's an image of people walking up to the Acropolis in, in Athens, Greece. And it, it's not only has to do with, with that journey, but also metaphorically where it's placed and, and the journey one has to do to get to the top of it. I wonder if you want to talk about any of the particular instances or examples from the book that you enjoy the most writing about or something that you relate to the most? Yeah, well, we can talk about that. Um, first of all, I apologize um, on behalf of the publisher. And we'll also have to get you a copy of the book, of course. So I, I apologize. I should, should have had the publisher do that beforehand. Yeah, so the Acropolis example is a good one. And it relates to a lot of things we're talking about. So 10 years ago, maybe longer than that, maybe more like 15 years ago now, um, I was fortunate enough to be able to um, visit Athens. And like any architecture student, one of the first things I wanted to see was the um, the Acropolis and the buildings at the top, mm. the Parthenon, the Erechtheum, and the Propylaea. I arrived in Athens. I, um, I went um, and um, with my partner and uh, walked to the you know, the, the park on the bottom and, and and took the ascent to the top on the famous path designed by Dimitri Picionis in the 1950s. And um, it made me angry, to be honest. Like just the, um, I knew this path was a, a recent addition to the Acropolis was something made in the 1950s. But the amount of like athleticism that was built both into the path, but also its aesthetics really angered me. So you, you, you go through this scrubby landscape and the, and it's something that many, many people kind of celebrate as one of the high points of um, Athenian, I mean, not Greek, late modern architecture, uh, up these very slippery marble pavers. And there's trees around that provide a little bit of shade, but not very much. And then the path gets steeper and steeper until finally um, he designed this very narrow, um, essentially a set of you know, it's a staircase, essentially, although you would, most people probably call it a path that sing, that leads you single file to the Propylaea, mm. where there's more steps and so forth. Okay. Um, and that are those steps are reconstructed remnants of the Roman additions to the Acropolis from 2000 years ago. So that was irritating. But what made me more um, frustrated was that um, on the way down and then subsequently visiting the Acropolis Museum, um, that's adjacent to the Acropolis at its base. There are models of the Acropolis over time. And one of them shows a model of the Acropolis from 2,500 years ago that shows these gently sloping ramps that used to lead you into the entrance. As, as you know, and maybe many of your listeners know, the entire site is, is kind of going through this um, very extensive um, quasi-reconstruction process to retain some sense of what it was like um, 2,500 years ago, which has been going, you know, this process has been going on for you know, more than a century and a half, really, involved removing all the traces of the Ottoman buildings and other things from the site and remove and dismantling some of the Roman structures as well. So it's this entire project about reconstructing um, what this was like in the past. But the idea that anything related to the ramp would be re reconstructed seems absurd. And so then the, the question is, why is that? 
And so I think, and what I write about is that one of the things that's kind of built into Picionis's path design is the idea that the experience of the past or of the of archaeological authenticity is built around forms of physical intense intensity in the people that experience these things. So in other words, one can only have an authentic experience of a site like this if one goes through some kind of um, arduous, physically um, arduous and ultimately exhausting experience. This is an idea from like European romanticist thought, really kind of British and German language writing has nothing to do with um, anything related to the history of the site. So that says other things that, you know, the site is what it is and it's difficult, but the site also um, has an idea built into it that's um, from the 19th century, reinforced in the 20th, about how one how one experiences history and who even has the ability to do that. Athens hosted the Olympics 20 years ago or so. And um, when you host the Olympics, you also hold, host the Paralympics, the Olympic sports for disabled athletes. And, and any of the sites that are uh, created for the uh, festivities around the um, Olympics have to be accessible. So they were forced to install a accessible elevator. I mean, an elevator to get to the top of the Acropolis. And it's basically, it was like a modified construction elevator that was the most rickety thing. It was one of the options that I could take to get to the top. But is, it, is it still here or was it just there for the Paralympics? Yeah, yeah, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. So you could take it to the top. But when you look at it, or I feel like any, like many people would look at that and think like, there's no way I'm going to take that elevator to the top. It looks more dangerous than you know, at least from my perspective, than what I may experience on the path. There's been protests against that in subsequent years. Um, this reached a crescendo about three years ago when a group of children who were in wheelchairs uh, went to the Acropolis and, and couldn't use the elevator. And it caused this kind of public furor. And so in the past two years, they rebuilt that elevator into something much more grand and even went so far as to install um really kind of large-scale concrete paving around the top to enable people to better move around the site. But all of that is controversial because it's transforming the hydrology of the site. And there's a very reasonable argument to be made, that is made, sorry, by archaeologists and the preservationists working on the site, that what does it mean to increase access to a site that's so archaeologically fragile? You know, there's all kinds of intersecting debates and there's no easy solution to any of this. I'm not proposing that there is. However, the, the discourse of like authenticity um, in this context needs to really be um, thought about more critically. And I would argue that disabled people, and particularly people like myself who are very familiar with preservation discourse, can um, offer perspectives and ideas about restoration and reconstruction um, from a disability perspective that begin to like obviate questions about like whether things are inaccessible or are accessible and introduce all kinds of other questions. So um, sorry, I'm going on and on, but I was lucky enough uh, a few years ago to be invited to team up with an archaeologist, a Greek archaeologist and a classical art historian to develop some very small scale artifacts, but that began to be interventions into this discussion on disability and access of the Acropolis. And those were exhibited at the um, Hashem Sarkis's um, uh, Venice Biennale, I guess, in the Arsenale Gallery. I think that was 2021. So just very quickly, the surviving archaeological record tells us that the people that, that went to the top after you know, going up these ramps, there was a seat that was very prominently displayed. 
and for obvious reasons, because you're tired after this journey. <laughs> and so nothing of it survives. So that was one of the artifacts that we reconstructed. We reconstructed it three different ways. I mean, nobody knows what it looks like. And then also um, there were some other artifacts adjacent to it that engaged themes of impairment and, and violence, actually, that have never been reconstructed. So we reconstructed those. And we also did a very kind of unusual non-visual reconstruction of the of the ramp you know none of these artifacts have to actually be at the acropolis to be experienced um but they they um, offer another perspective on ideas about um impairment disability reconstruction and the history of sites like that something that again is very uh I think relevant to the Indian context is you mentioned the arduous journey one has to make to get to the top. And that's often the case with a lot of religious pilgrimage sites in India. Uh, a lot of Jain temples, most often you'll find Jain temples located on peaks of mountains and one would have to climb. I don't know, like I, I know one of them has like 45,000 steps and only steps a uh, couple of temples in the south, you have to walk. Like people start walking up the mountain at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. in the morning to get there by 9, 10 a.m. But that's also, I think, a very integral part of the pilgrimage journey that people have to make so that, you know, you have to work yourself to reach mm. to God kind mm. of a, a narrative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But of course, even one could look at that. Also, a lot of pilgrimage sites in up north in the mountains, in the Himalayas, there's entire economies based on transportation where, of course, a lot of older people, when they go to visit, they're not able to climb. So you'd have uh, palanquin bearers who literally two of mm. them along a bamboo pole who will carry you, who will lug you up to the mountain. And then you have all sorts of like animals lugging you up to the mountain. But I, I think just looking at the way you're looking at it, a lot of people could also make an argument for an entire economy that thrives on places which were designed to provide that kind of an uphill journey. I've, I've never thought about it that way. I'm, I'm just now yeah. making that connection. Yeah, yeah. Like, huh. I'm just saying maybe that's that's what was kind of common in these older civilizations is, you know, you, you have to work your way up and they were always located on the top of something, especially Indian temples. There'll be some very important temple located in a place which is very difficult to get to. But we could also look at counterexamples. Like I just finished reading um, Stephen Graeber and um, Wingrid's um, book, The Dawn of Everything, in which um, they describe the um, uh, Teotihuacan that are built around um, these giant um, stepped and or, or mound uh, temple spaces and ziggurats, and that um, civilizations around them eventually abandoned the use of them and created one-story cities um, that surrounded them that also offered um, a kind of completely different social model of their arrangement, one that was less about um, physical exertion and, um, and, and, and and exactly what you say, a, a kind of um, religion of sublimation. Yeah. So, you know, religious experience of sublimation. So, you know, that book is... Um, is, is very much in line with some of the ideas and the architecture of disability. So th those are, and, and a, a history that I'm less familiar with. So those are fantastic to read, but, um, but yeah, that's a, it makes me think of a few other things. Um, for, chiefly, if I was a more charismatic person, I would love to form a religion around the experiences of disability and incapacity. <laughs> it's never too late. <laughs> a religion that centered our 
um, relative weaknesses as a form of spiritual experience. I would, you know, okay, a fantasy project if I retire from teaching. I mean, I hope it graduates <laughs> into religion, but it for sure has all the markings of being a fabulous cult. So I'm, I'm all for it. <laughs> we would wash, worship cool temperatures and, and darker spaces where our bodies would thrive be very different than the the vision of like a christian church we already have a manifesto see there it is <laughs> <laughs> that's, right, that's right right it's the beginning right yeah next project what i was going to say um oh but there are examples there's an example in the book i don't get too into it but um it's, it's briefly mentioned but um uh the basilica of saint denis out, um sort of in the suburbs of paris that was a famous uh well that was an important essential pilgrimage site and one of the um directors i guess you'd say of the um of the basilica in the in the 13th century wrote notes and reflections about the number of impaired worshipers they came and and how um difficult it was to watch their kind of struggles to touch the relics in the church and he goes then goes on to describe the kinds of transformations that were made to the church not just for the sake of these people but to be more amenable to large crowds of pilgrims so again back to something i was mentioning earlier one can find histories of incapacity throughout the history of architecture. That church is considered one of the um, birthplaces of uh, Gothic architecture. And this person, Abbe Suget, is um, a critical figure in um, the person who wrote these reflections I'm talking about in, in that story. I also want to talk about something we spoke about when we first uh, spoke about the interview. And uh, that has to do with the use and the idea of the word care and because this season we are broadly working with these with these three words and we've spoken to somebody who is looking at the history of care infrastructures and care typologies i i found it very surprising when you say that the word care sometimes acts as a trigger for a lot of people who are disabled can you elaborate on that yeah, so um i used to think i was alone in this but um it turns out that i'm not so in disability studies, there's a subset, I would say, that um, talks about kind of communities of care and issues of self-care and um, cultures of care. Okay. Um, a lot of that writing is actually written by people who are not disabled, who view themselves as caregivers. They have children who are disabled or a partner or spouse who's disabled, who they've cared for. Often, you know, these stories don't end well, obviously. There's, you know, some of them are very tragic about how people care for people at the end of their life. I think among those of us who have been very seriously um, impaired since we were children, the issue of care is, is more complex because care has often been used as a kind of leverage to institutionalize us. Okay, This is something very important. I can maybe talk about it a, a little bit more at length once I just kind of give you a summary of my thoughts. So that's an issue. The care has been kind of leveraged as a way to, um, to basically say, like, you need care. And that becomes a form of power. Um, some of us have um, had struggles, the very people that are, the, that are centered in those discussions of care and disability studies. Some of us have struggles with our parents who may see um, our lives as disabled people um, taking a very different direction than the lives we want for ourselves thinking about issues around independence mm. our sexual lives you know whatever you know our, the, the things that um, we, we need you know as independent people particularly younger people and then there's the um the kinds of um 
subtle forms of discourse around aid that uh, many disabled people find belittling uh, throughout their life and in which um, care and aid become ways to argue that um, disabled people have incapacities that need to be um, sort of coddled, right? I used to think I was alone in being um, skeptical. Actually, that's a very nice word, being outraged (laughs) by the discourse around care and disability. But I was having a conversation recently with a group of very prominent disability scholars, some of whom are disabled, some of them are not. And it was interesting that the other disabled people at the table said they, they very much agreed with the kinds of concerns that I have, that, that care is a, can be a frightening term for them. And precisely for the reasons that I've just mentioned, their struggles um, trying to have independence, their struggles with institutionalization, their struggles with their parents, and their struggles today as people who don't see themselves as needing help but having a different perspective to bring on what it means to be a human being. And I don't know if care makes much of a space for that, right? Now, so that's an, you know, that's an interesting question. When disabled people, so the retort is, well, disabled people have been practicing communities of care. Well, it's an interesting question. When I, and let's say a fellow amputee, like teach each other how to run, are we caring for each other? I would argue that the experience is more like just like anybody else, any other athlete, we're competing with each other. We're, we're struggling against each other's relative capacities and incapacities. I don't think, it doesn't feel like care, but it feels good. Um, and it feels like something I want. So I think those of us who have dealt with dis- impairments, very serious ones throughout our whole life, have a lot to discuss when it comes to these um, ideas about care today. And how they do us a, what we think. I'm not saying it's an absolute, but how they may appear to do us a a disservice at times. And again, I don't want to be extreme. Like, I understand how important um, this topic is in in many other contexts. So I don't want to be completely dismissive. I'm just saying in this very specific context, the context of disability and the very cultural context of the United States, it had some um, implications that are frightening. Continuing from that, as an able-bodied person, and you know, you don't often think of yourself as an able-bodied person unless you're talking about the other, which is disabled. In in discourses which exist right now, um, in academics or otherwise, there is that othering of disability as a, a group that needs to be accounted for, or a group that is different from you, as in, you know, as designers, we are designing for the disabled, of course. Sometimes as a designer, you might have had an experience. Most times you've not. In your opinion, what do you think are some of the ways in which there could be a healthy flow of information or what are some of the ways in which a dialogue or a support system could be set up where the othering could be minimized? In the context in which I operate, which is architecture and and, and architecture schools, right? That's where I work. I think the answer is very simple. We need more disabled people teaching, leading, um, informing, um, studying uh, architecture. And I think once you do that, then it's no longer an issue of othering. You know, it's it's just like any other kinds of claims that need to be made for representation in our field. This is, you know, it's so important. And so, you know, I want to sound grandiose, um, but I think... I'm in a relatively lucky position, you know, things could be better, but I'm relatively lucky position. So I see it as a responsibility for myself to kind of make some space, you know, not just for me, 
but for other people to enter this profession or to study architectural history or to be involved with architecture that have not. And um, that includes disabled people, includes many, many other kind, you know, many, many other people as well. So that's really important to me. And things change, right? It, you know, immediately um, when you see that perspective. And I think a lot of the absurdities that come out of um, previous engagements um, with disabled people in architecture school go away. So, for example, I recently saw videos that were taken by students in a studio about um, about access, in which at the end of the semester, they were carrying an eight foot long model down six stories of stairs. And I, so, you know, I'm only laughing, like, how is this studio about, it was, it was, this is one of the, I mean, what's so interesting is this is, this is, this studio was engaging in, in, in many ways, the topic of disability, which was great. But at the same time, to your point, it's so othered in a way, because the, the like, how could experiences of impairment even enter into that process, which I'm sure was not unique to this. It's not unique to that studio, of course, like these kinds of things happen over and over again. So yeah, I mean, there's other things that many other people have discussed um, and have been talking for a long time. So one of the ways that disability is other typically in architectural education is by um, inviting students to quote unquote experience disability. So in the past, you know, professors will have students sit in a wheelchair, put on a blindfold or put on headphones. So they experience what it's like to be somebody in a wheelchair, a, a deaf person, a blind person. That is not, let me just make this very clear. That is not what it, that is not the chief experience of being a disabled person. You know, I think my chief experience of a disabled person is, is the fear of many people that have very serious impairments is of economic ruin. I mean, the amount of money that we spend is just one of many examples to buy things like prosthetics or to have certain kinds of forms of medical care is so extreme. Um, so that, you know, if you want to know what it's like to be a disabled person, pay a $30,000 medical bill. If you want to know what it's like to be a disabled person with certain kinds of impairments, know what it's like to fear, have fears about your own mortality in ways that a lot of other people don't because they haven't survived cancer, among other things. So those are other ways in which disability becomes othered, right? But again, you know, when you have people in leadership or teaching or students who bring these perspectives, it really shifts things. And that you, you, I, you know, I can't say this enough. You just realize what it is, a, a contribution it is to like education and discourse, because I, I believe that really great education is about constant debate and critique and discussion. And it brings in, you know, like perspectives that are completely under underrepresented and so badly needed. Right. So especially, you know, we're entering a very interesting phase in, um, I think, in a culture in the United States because the um, the pandemic has very much wound wound down, and and people have gone through an experience in which many people who never thought about disability or impairment or illness had to. Mm. And so the question for me is like, how does that inform the culture of this country moving forward? I'm not just talking about architectural education. I mean, in everyday life. And so I have a lot of concern that some people just want to go back to the way things were before, I think other people realize um, that's not going to, you know, what is before? Like, what does that even mean? And is that even possible? So um, it's an interesting, and um, frightening and exciting moment, I think, in this country, at least, in terms of um, thinking about how ideas about impairment may or may not become part of the culture. You know, just let me just go on one second. Like, I've noticed changes in my day-to-day -day life. So, for example, in the summertime, 
um, when I wear shorts, it's very obvious that I'm an amputee and I would walk around New York City. I feel like I would often get like kind of strange um, looks or stares from people. But since the pandemic, that's changed because, again, I think people have realized that impairment is is more of you know something that can be woven into your everyday experiences in ways that you could never have previously imagined. I don't know if that's created a point of contact or empathy or who knows what, but um, but it's just a very subtle change that I've noticed in people's attitudes that uh, physical weakness, disfigurement is, is something that can sort of be tolerated as an aspect of everyday life in a way that it wasn't as recently as five years ago. I mean, it's unfortunate it has to be tolerated. I think it should just be normal. I mean, just like... <laughs> This body is normal. There's different forms of body that should be just normalized to the extent that you don't make heads turn every time, you know, you see yeah. a body that looks different from yours. But my last question, it's a very standard question that I ask every time is now you have the book that's out. What's next? How do you take it from <laughs> here? Um, yeah. Just where do we go from here? Yeah. Thanks for that question. Well, first of all, I've been completely overwhelmed with the response to this book. It has really um, it has caught me a bit off guard, and I've been very busy lecturing about it, having discussions like this for the past, um, what has it been, seven months. So I have not had a lot of time to um, develop a new project at the moment. Um, however, um, one of the things that's been very exciting about the response to the book, and that I've been, um, it's been making me very happy, is the number of mus- municipalities institutions and organizations that have come to me to take some kind of role in helping them plan their futures and relative to the ideas in the book. So I've been having some really um, exciting conversations with practitioners, with museums, with uh, municipal officials who want to better understand how the ideas in this book can relate to to where they want to go as an institution or as a city, as planners, as practitioners. So um, that has become a a very growing part of my um, practice, and it's something that I want to continue to develop, Um, um, talking to institutions, talking to cities about the ways the ideas in the book can be implemented. That's really important. In terms of studies, you know, more um, like kind of writing and academic things, I'm interested in spinning off some of the themes from the book and taking a closer look at things. Um, So, for example, a current obsession of mine, it's a detail is this idea of the one-story city that was advanced by um, uh, many modernist architects as a kind of retort to the idea that modern urbanization is something that required greater height and mass. And so it's really interesting how much of that history engages with um, uh, veterans and ideas about physical weakness and physical rejuvenation, also like um, ideas that are um, trying to figure out ways to push back against the demands of the capitalist city. So that's something I want to take a closer look at. Uh, I don't know where that's going to go, but that's both a historical project, but also a design project in terms of thinking about what that might be, what its future might be. Awesome. Thank you so much, David, for this conversation. Thank you so much. I really appreciated it. And um, I hope it was helpful. Special thanks to Ayushi Thakur for the research and design support and Kahan Shah for the background score. You can follow us on Instagram at arcofcenter and reach out to us through our website arcofcenter.com that is A-R-C-H-O-F-F-C-E-N-T-R-E and thanks for listening.